right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320-KLWN. KU officially has a scholarship available. Tyon Grant Foster has entered the transfer portal. Turn this music down. I don't want to hear this anymore. I want to hear... There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to the average basketball fan. It is a dimension as large as Wilt and as timeless as Perry Ellis. It is the middle ground between staying and leaving, between wins and losses, and it lies between the pit of recruiting and entrance to the NBA. This is the dimension of new schools. It is an area which we call the transfer portal. Ty and Grant Foster has entered the transfer portal. Wow. Gone too soon. Well, don't don't kill the guy. I'm killing his Kansas career. It's over. It's dead. Billy Packer, this game is over. What is your favorite memory from the Ty and Grant Foster era at Kansas? The block against North Dakota State. Although, I don't know, those garbage points against USC, those were fun. Didn't he have a cool dunk somewhere along the line? (laughs) That sounds like you're just having a conversation where you know nothing about basketball and you're just like some guy brings up a name. You have no idea who it is and just like, oh, he was the guy who had the the cool dunk that one time. Wasn't it against Iowa State, the uh, the one in Allen Fieldhouse? I think he had a dunk. That was cool. I I miss having a player that you can refer to as just three initials. I'll say that. Okay, you might get this tie tie kid. That's close. No, I guess TTW. Well, you could just call him tie tie. I don't like. It's only I don't four like, letters. I'm I'm just gonna say this now. If KU gets tie tie Washington, I don't like that. I have to call somebody tie tie. I. I'll be honest with you. Um, it's. It's crossed my mind, like the idea of, of saying tie tie thousands of times. times. Yeah. Over the next couple of years, that would that would not be super great. Yeah. I'd probably end up just calling him Ty. We're going to have to say Ty Ty a lot of times times. <laughs> I'll probably just end up calling him Ty is what I think I'll stick with. What if he comes out, though, and is like, no. I hate it when people call me Ty. Call me is he going to go to – is he going to commit to Kansas? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Because and, – and this is not a big deal – Totally not freaking out. I don't even care. I literally, I couldn't care less. There's nobody who cares less than I do. Tyson Walker, the Northeastern transfer, committed to Michigan State over the weekend. Now, since then, Michigan State's starting point guard, Rocket Watts, entered the transfer portal. So I'm assuming Michigan State knew that information was coming, told that Tyson Walker, hey, you come and be the starting point guard for a program that doesn't have uh, allegations hanging over their head. Boom. Although, as opposed to allegations, you do just have straight-up evidence that uh, 
Tom Izzo just has a certain way with his relationships with his players. I mean, this is like three years in a row now where we've got like video evidence of him getting maybe a little bit too physical, right? It's not Bob Knight. He's not punching guys or hitting guys, but you know, he kind of grabs him by the arm like a mom with a four, three-year-old who's running around the grocery store and she's just had it up to here, you know? That's how Tom Izzo treats his players, which it's been quite evident also that his players don't necessarily love that, but I guess that's a different conversation. Tyson Walker going to Michigan State. It's okay, you still need somebody, or I'm sure they still want somebody who can come in and help them at that point guard spot. Ty Ty Washington would be your next candidate because if not him, you're running short on desirable candidates. There would still be candidates. I said you're running short on desirable candidates. Bobby Pettiford? He is a six foot. 170-pound point guard from Creedmoor, North Carolina. He recently decommitted from Louisville. And apparently, KU recently conducted a Zoom call Mm. with Bobby Pettiford. That was uh, reported earlier by Matt Tate. I would imagine Ty Ty Washington is one and then there's a blank spot at two and three and four, and then you get down to some of these other guys. Pettiford's a ranked 115th by rivals. He's top 124-7 sports, 88th. Um, be fine, but Ty Ty Washington's a top 40 player, 6'4", probably going to play professionally after college. Like That's the guy you want. That's the guy you want. Can you land him? And at what point would you start to inch closer to the panic button? If they don't get this kid, if they don't get the uh, Brandon McKissick kid, I would almost inch closer to the panic button about McKissick than, than Washington. Not to say McKissick's better than Washington. You should get him. Exactly. It's a guy coming from UMKC. I get it. Like, he has other schools that are interested, but, like, you look at those other schools that are in his finalist list, St. Louis and Missouri, and, and maybe because he's from there, that holds a personal relationship to him. He wants to go there, but it's a little bit easier to say, oh, we lost out on a recruit who's a top 40 guy because he's going to Duke or Kentucky or whatever. As opposed to saying, no, we lost the guy to Travis Ford at St. Louis. Mm. Who else is on his list? McKissick. Because this is a kid who averaged 18 a game, shot 42% from three. He wouldn't be your point guard, but he'd give you some much-needed depth, perhaps some shot-creating, some playmaking ability at the guard spot, and he would immediately compete with, I think, Bryce Thompson and Christian Brown for playing time. And he's a senior. Like, he isn't a kid who's raw and needs to learn the ways. Like, he's going to come in right away and contribute. No, and he was Summit League Defensive Player of the Year. So, he's obviously a guy who, you know, is going to lock in. We know that's important for KU players with Bill Self because usually that's the first way out of the game. If you want to ride the bench, you make a mistake on the defensive end of the court. Well, he just announced right over the weekend that he's going to make a decision at some point in the next couple of days. Yeah, he said he has six finalists. Let's hear him. I don't have him. Oh, he just said he's got six. Yeah. Interesting. So he's what? I mean, he did list them. I just... It's somewhere on the internet. Oh, okay, so you would just say that, dude. If you say... Did he say them or not? You can just say that. It's okay. We'll find them later. Um, I got him. 
Kansas, Oregon State, Florida, St. Louis, Missouri, and Kansas State. And it sounds like there's actually a piece. That's why on, you feel like you should get him. Yeah, there's a, there's a piece on 24-7 Sports where he talks with Eric Bossy of uh, 24-7. And uh, he apparently mentions he's got, like, a really good relationship with one of the assistant coaches at Missouri. He's from St. Louis, so that would be going home for him to St. Louis. Do you want to hear what he said about Kansas? Yeah, of course I want to hear what he said about Kansas. Coach Roberts called me, and then maybe 45 seconds a minute, two at tops, I hear an outside voice of the office asking, is that BMAC? By the way, that might be infringing. I don't know if we can have another BMAC. But anyway, um, Mm. he said, and somebody grabs the phone, and it's Coach Self. So I'm on the phone with Coach Self, and he's like, BMAC. And I'm like, yes, Coach, you can't say much. You just have to listen. He wasn't really happy, he told me, that he wasn't really happy with the loss to USC. He's trying to get back to having athleticism and speed, those two combo guard backcourts. So kind of what we assumed by him meaning athleticism and speed. He wants that at the guard position. Like a Frank Mason and Devontae Graham backcourt, it is a great opportunity to have even to just develop a relationship with Coach Self through this recruiting process. It's been, I wouldn't say shocking, but I'd say a blessing. Not a lot of players get to say they've developed some type of relationship with Coach Bill Self. There's not a lot of coaches like him out there, and I told him I had a high amount of respect for him the first time he called me. It, because there's a fine line between, okay, KU's able to overcome these allegations and these infractions case hanging over their head because they're Kansas and because these recruits have so much respect for them. And then there's a part of you that wonders, is that the only reason why they're in the, the room? And it's just out of respect for Kansas that they're even making it onto the top six lists for these kids and that they're amongst the finalists. But in all seriousness, they're not actually going to land any of these kids. We'll find out. If you don't land any of these kids, it's not going to be because, up. Oh, you just had a bad break. It's going to be, okay, these kids are really worried that KU's not going to be in the NCAA tournament next year. Fortunately for Kansas, I mean, what were the schools? Missouri, St. Louis, Kansas State. Are any of those schools going to be in the NCAA Oregon tournament State's next year? Oregon Elite Eight. What do you want? Florida. I'm just saying, based off his list, he doesn't strike me as the type of guy where that's the end-all, be-all. Hey, St. Louis was uh, first four out. He's the difference. Kansas could get an NCAA tournament ban next year and still have a better chance of making the NCAA tournament than K-State. I'm dead serious. Because I would take, like if K- if like if Bill Self had to like take him to federal court and sue them and the, the punishment got held off, that has a better chance of happening than K-State making the NCAA tournament next year. So, I don't think that's going to be the deciding factor for him. But we'll see. If he winds up at Oregon State or Florida, then maybe it will be. Then maybe we'd say, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Even then, like, Oregon State barely made it this year. Come on. So, it's Florida. So, he's going to Florida. That was easy. And it's final. And that's, and that's final. Get to your room, young man. Who else? Am I missing? Is that it? Did we mention the uh, Tamar Bates kid? Tamar Bates, formerly of Texas, from Piper, mm-hmm. committed to play for Shocker Smart of Texas. Kansas recruited the hell out of him. He commits to play for Shocker Smart, who is now going to Marquette. As you might imagine, Tamar Bates has opened up. Who knows? Maybe that's just him opening it up so he can go with Shocker Smart to Marquette, you know? Maybe, but I don't know. I mean, how often does that happen? 
How often do guys follow a coach who does that at the last second? I know what happened with that Caleb uh, Grill kid from Mays. He went with TJ Otzelberger, was like at South Dakota State. I think he committed there. Or he originally was like Iowa State. But that's like an, oh, okay. Then there. And then when he left for UNLV, he went to UNLV or something. And now he has entered the transfer portal and Otzelberger's going to Iowa State. So who knows? You might go with him again. Dude, blaze your own trail, dude. Stop following <laughs> this coach around. There are other guys who can help you. But generally speaking, they'll open up their recruitment just because, oh, I'm not going to play for the guy I didn't want to. But you know what? Let's just do this recruitment thing again because it is fun for everybody to fawn over me. So, Like Jalen Wilson. Let me go ahead and redo this and have all these coaches kiss my ass for a couple months, and then I'll just pick a different school. I think, honestly, man, I really do because we make so much of it because they, these individual recruits impact these programs in a big way, and yes, it is a big step for these kids. But it's kind of like, it just depends on how you view things generally in life. Are you somebody who believes in your one true love? Uh, you were destined to be with this person forever, right? God put you on this earth, and you had to end up with that person. You found them. It's kismet. Or are you of the belief that there's about 7 billion of us. I could probably, there's probably a, I'd say there's probably about a billion, a billion that I could see myself being with, right? Okay, so if I'm a guy and I'm only interested in, personally, I'm only interested in women and there's how many women? Like three and a half billion, four billion, give or take. About a third of them, we're just not going to be compatible. Another third of them, they, I like them, they like me, and oh, Maybe there's another half that I they like me, I don't like them. So then that narrows it down You're to... You're yourself a lot of credit there. Well, I don't know. I'm just a doing quick math. A billion woman? I'm doing quick math because I could really extrapolate this out, but it would take right, me hours. Wilt. I'm just saying, compatibility-wise, mm -hmm. maybe there'd be a language barrier that would whittle it down even more. I'd say, okay, let's get past this. you got to be able to speak English. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, this is never going to work. Um, have to have all your appendages intact. Like, now I'm really starting to... Yeah, Whoa. I know, I know. I'm picky. I'm picky. Up. And so we would finally get it down to, I don't know, a, yeah. a million women? I and mean, you're not going to be coastal because you're going to have a couple shark bites in there. That's going to take away some. So a million, right? A million. That's what it is with these kids in their schools. It's like, oh, yeah, I had to go to Shaka Smart. He's the only coach. I just knew it the second. Or it's like, uh, that Texas seems cool. Austin seems like a fun town. That'd be a good program to play for. But there's also like a dozen other programs I'd be perfectly happy playing for. That's more than likely how it works for a lot of these kids. So, Tamar Bates, want to come play for Kansas? You got playing time. You want to go follow Shaka Smart to Marquette? Is he point guard? Combo. I think he's a combo guard. All right. Well, we don't... I mean, come on down, first off, but also, need a point guard. What do you mean? Like, every KU point guard has been a combo guard. Yeah, but need a point guard. Need a guy who's really going to run the point. So Dewan Harris. Are you sold on the idea if they if KU enters the season with DeJuan Harris as the point guard, are you cool with that? Who's the two guard? How much does that change things? Very much. What type of two guard do you need to see next to DeJuan Harris? Somebody who can get their own shot off and create for you late in shot clock situations. So the opposite part. of him? Yes. But he also can handle the ball? Yes. Well, I don't think that guy's currently on the roster, is he? It could be Bryce Thompson, but not yeah, that Bryce version. Thompson, not that version jump. of Bryce you need Thompson. A jump. You need a jump. So probably not. Brandon McKissick, 
Is that is that Tamar Bates? Have you reviewed the film? I have not. I've only looked at the stats. It looks like he had some good games against the Power 5 competition he played this year. I would be worried a little bit the fact that he had almost as many turnovers as he did assists. Uh, it's fine. It's probably the system. Okay. All right, if, if you haven't seen anything, just chalk it up to the system or the coach or the players around him. Hey, we're going to talk some Royals baseball. Last day of spring training today, opening day versus the Rangers coming up on Thursday. Our friend David Lesky is going to join the show coming up here in about 15 minutes. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. I'm looking at the lineup for the Royals today, their final game of spring training, and it's a pretty interesting one. There's a lot of recognizable names. There's... A lot of guys that you probably expect to play big roles, if not be, in the opening day starting lineup coming up on Thursday. This is that part of the year where we make that transition. We're sad for a week after KU loses and their season's over, and now we transition into spring, right? Spring has sprung, and with spring means new opportunities, new beginnings, the beginning of a new Royals season, and that means anything could happen. Let's talk about every single different Potential outcome with David Lesky, who joins us now on the show. You can check out his new Substack, Inside the Crown, which I would highly recommend for any Royals fans. David joins us now. How's it going, David? How you feeling, man? Uh, I feel good. It's 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 baseball season, sort of almost, and uh, we get to talk again. So there, there's nothing wrong in the world. The Royals have had a really, really good spring. I don't know how much that matters, but what do you make? of the fact that they're sitting here today, I believe, 15-8 and eight in the Cactus League, which is good enough for first place. How much does it matter? What do you make of this? Uh, the record, I don't think, matters. Um, but, well, it does. I mean, it, it depends on how they get there, obviously. We talk about this every year. What does, spring, what does spring stats mean? What does the record mean? All that, blah, blah, blah. You know, how they've gotten there, to me, is really encouraging because we've seen a lot of good stuff from the young pitching, We've seen a lot of good stuff from the offense. Um, and, and, and on top of that, good stuff from the young offense. And guys who, Bobby Witt Jr. didn't make the team, um, but he obviously is like on the precipice. Nick Prado might be even more encouraging because he was about to fall out of prospect status. He was about to just become an organizational filler, and he was fantastic this spring. And he's put himself back on the radar with some swing changes. Tony Matias is another guy put himself back on the radar with, with just some changes to his game that they, they paid off in surprise, that's for sure. We'll see how they do once the season starts, whenever it starts in the minors. But um, they they looked really, really good. And then you look at some of the, the acquisitions. Carlos Santana, I mean, he's walked like an 18% rate this spring. Michael A. Taylor, this is something I'm going to write about tomorrow, 17% walk rate. <laughs> spring is crazy. For a guy who's never been above seven and a half percent in the regular season, so the guys who they want to get them over the hump have been good this spring. And so, even if they'd gone, even if they were eight and fifteen instead of fifteen and eight to start the day today, who cares? Because the, the players you need to be good have been, for the most part, really, really good. So it's been a really encouraging spring. Um, 
I I think that people have a reason to be as excited for this season as they have since, what, 2017, I guess, that last year of the group, 2016, 2017, that time. And this is, I don't think they're a playoff team, but they're an exciting team and they're an interesting team. Um, And this spring has kind of proven that so far. Well, in the spring is the time of the year where we get excited about those young prospects. And the Bobby Witt Jr. hype train that officially left the station, well, and maybe it left the station at some point over the last year, but uh, full steam ahead, right? I don't know how many more train analogies I can come up with. I think I've exhausted all of them. Um, He looked really good. He looked really good in the spring, yet he's not going to start the season on the active roster, I know there's more to that than just play, just in terms of service time, and you know the Royals may be playing the long game there. But with what you saw from him, is is this hype real? Is the excitement warranted for what this kid has in store in the future? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that they're playing a service time game with him. They don't tend to do that. And um, one one player you can look at, we can talk about in a minute. Kyle Isbell looks like he's going to make the roster. Um, they're not playing a service time game with him, but. With Wit, I, I think the excitement is <laughs> legitimate. I mean, this is a kid who he, his bat-to-ball skills were kind of the thing that were in question. His just his hit tool in general. There was a lot of swing and miss in his game, and there's still a fair amount um, that we saw in spring training. But boy, he, his hands are his wrists are so quick. There was it was a Sunday night game. It was on MLB Network that he hit a home run on a pitch. On the inner third of the plate, or inside, it was. It wasn't even on the inner third. It was. It was off the plate. He turned his wrist so fast to get to that ball, and hit a screamer out to left field. And I looked it up. Last season, there were like three home runs hit on pitches in that spot <laughs> in the whole season, and he did it off uh, Julio Arias for the Dodgers. So, I mean, this is this is exciting. He is he is the type of player who can become an MVP candidate who can be the uh, the type who's like the face of baseball. And, I, and I, it sounds really hyperbolic, but he has every tool in the world to be able to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, he's, he's worth the excitement. I, I think that, you know, the, the when the season starts is going to be a question. Um, right now it's May 4th. They've already pushed back the AAA season. I don't think they're going to push it back again, but you never know. Um but if it starts on time, I would not be surprised to see Bobby Witt Jr. in the big leagues by early July. It's just he just needs a little bit more time, a little bit more, a little bit more seasoning against against some upper level pitching because he did struggle a bit in the spring against major league pitchers. Um, a lot of the damage was done against minor league guys. Although, like I said, some of it was done against legitimately good big league pitchers like like Arias. Um, but boy, he looked he looked every bit the part of the number two overall pick and. I'm I'm excited to see him in the big leagues. It, it's he's going to add another another level of athleticism, some some pop, some great defense. I mean, just just a really really good all around player. He's 20 years old too. Like that's the other thing. This isn't a 23, yeah. 24 year old prospect. This is a very very young prospect. He is the best Royals prospect since whom, David? Oh boy, Hosmer um, might be the guy. And if you remember when Hosmer came up in 2011, he was hitting like 430 in AAA. Yeah. <laughs> it was they wanted to keep him down longer in 2011, but they I mean you couldn't justify it because what what did he have to learn when you're when you're hitting 430, you know? And and that's probably the guy. Um, you know, if you it might be might be even before that it might be Zach Greinke, who um, obviously hard to compare pitchers to hitters, but I mean Greinke was so advanced for his age that. 
I mean, you just couldn't keep him in the minors anymore, just similar to Hosmer. But it's, he's, he's one of the best prospects the Royals have had ever, I think. Um, and that's, that's pretty exciting <laughs> because they've had some good ones. I mean, they've obviously had, had one of the best farm systems ever back about a decade ago. They've, they've had some phenoms before, and so to, to be in that conversation is pretty crazy for him. So is, is it more about what he shows in that, I don't even, are we calling it minors? I don't know what we're calling the, the alternate sort of place. With- so it sounds like he's going to be in Arizona with a few of the Royals' bigger prospects. They're, they're going to keep some of those guys down there and keep the alternate site, which is only going to exist until the minor league season starts in okay. May. But it sounds like that's going to be more of a taxi squad group of guys and these, these Uber prospects are going to be down in Arizona so they can play some more games. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how they're going to work it. So is it, is it more <laughs> just, about what he does in the, the coming months or is it more about what the Royals get from the other guys at that position at, to start the season? Well, I mean, I, I, in some ways, it, it kind of depends on the Royals' success, right? So if, if they are playing really, really well and Michael A. Taylor is playing well in center, Isbell is playing well in right, we have a pretty good idea that Merrifield is going to play well at second base, um, and Dozier is healthy and playing well at third, I, I could see them saying, look, we, we'd love to get you up, but we don't have a spot for you. <laughs> I mean, there, there's just there's no place to put you, um, and it, it, that's a great problem to have. If they are playing poorly, I could see them saying, sorry, Taylor, you're not part of the future. We're going to move Isbell to center, Dozier to right, Bobby Witt's coming up to play third. So I think it kind of depends on how the team is doing. Um, even even if everybody else is playing well, but I mean, ultimately, it's really it's about Bobby Witt. I mean, when when he comes up, there the, the the plan is that he's the best player on the team within a year or two, um, because I think he's got the kind of talent to be the best player on the team within a year or two. So it, it really all depends on how the team is playing in some ways because they're probably not going to want to break things up if they're in first place. I don't think they will be, so it's probably not going to be an issue. But uh, there, there's a few factors involved there, but I think for the most part it's about Bobby Witt. David Lesky joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Okay, um, the Bobby Witt happy hour is over for today. I, I knew we had to do it to, for our first conversation of the season, but let's get into some of the guys that are actually going to be on this opening day roster uh, going back to the spring training, which the number, the hitting numbers across the board were really impressive. Who impressed you the most? Maybe not who was the best player necessarily, but surpassed your expectations the most to the point where um, you're a little bit higher on them now than you would have been a month ago. Well, I mentioned Taylor. And the, the fact that he's working walks, he's showing power. I, he's, he's had good springs before with the Nationals, so we'll see how that goes. But he's been really interesting to me. Um, the other player is Kyle Isbell who I don't think he had a shot to make this team <laughs> coming into spring training. And now, unless I've missed it, I think they're going to be announcing that he did make the team. Um, and that's, that's crazy to me. They, even, they, they demoted him. They, they sent him down a week ago, a little over a week ago. And so you thought, okay, well, that's the end of that. No, apparently not. Apparently he kept get, getting shots, and he, he earned his way onto the team. And part of that is Nicky Lopez's struggle. Um, they got Nicky Lopez demoted yesterday, actually. Um, but Kyle Isbell, he has just looked every bit the part of a big leaguer. I don't know if you had a chance to watch yesterday. They were on NLB TV against the Rockies, and it's the only park in Arizona that has stat cast data. So we were able to see how hard he hit the ball. And he, he hit a ball to left center field, the opposite way, 
that just a really nice, clean, easy swing. Yeah, 105 to the gap. And then he lined out later to dead center, 106 off the bat. I mean, it's it's a clean swing. He plays good defense. He's a really good base runner. I mean, there, there's there's a lot to like about Kyle Isbell. And I thought he was coming quick. Um but he, he showed a lot this spring, and, I, and he earned the job. He absolutely earned the job, and, and I, I think they're going to make that decision to keep him in the big leagues, and I think it's the right one. Yeah, Isbell being up is sort of that name that I at least I certainly wasn't circling or had starred before the season began. We talked last year with that weird sort of COVID season about how you know, if you played poorly and think you you fell short of expectations, you should, you could just sort of chalk it up to, oh well, it was a weird year, right? But if you played well, like we saw with some of those young arms in the starting rotation, you could say, okay, well, this is the best thing to come out of this season. Now we're getting back to normalcy in a sense this year with a full slate of games. So I ask you the same question that I asked you last year at, the, at this time: What would be the best case scenario to come out of this season for the Royals? Well, I, I think that they've made the, the effort to win. And so it's not about, I mean, it is about development. So it, it, it's kind of difficult to, to grasp here because the Royals want to win, but I don't think they're quite there. Um, so I think the best thing, obviously, is to win because they've got it. They have a team on the field that doesn't require a million breaks for them to win. A, for, not, to win the division would be tough because the White Sox are so good. But to go to the playoffs, it doesn't require every single thing going right. So that's helpful. Uh, but at the same time, this team is they're still about the 22, 23, 24, 25 window, I think. Because we haven't even seen Daniel Lynch, Aza Lacey, Jackson Coar, Austin Cox, all these guys. We, we, saw, we saw Singer, we saw Bubich last year. Uh, Carlos Hernandez made his debut. There, there's, there's a lot more, even. And so we haven't even gotten there. And I mentioned Prado and Matias, and, and we talked about Witt and Isabel and all them. It's just they're not quite where they can have the, this homegrown group of really good baseball players. And so for this season, to me, it's still a success would still be Lynch getting up and throwing 50, 60, 70, 80, 80, somewhere in there. Same thing for, for Jackson Coar and maybe Aza Lacey, although he's been held back a little bit just to kind of get him, get his feet wet. Um, that to me is, is what makes a success this year. I don't, I don't think you, you, get down on them if they go 73 and 89. I don't think that's, this is the time next year. Yeah. Next year you got to win at some point. You've got to turn these prospects into victories. But I don't think they're quite there yet. And so I think the, the real key, get these guys experience, get them on the field, get them good success at the big league level. I think that makes it a good season. Um, they don't have to win for me for this to be a, a successful year, but this is the last year that that's the case. For a while, because next year they got to win. They they have the pieces. They've got the talent. Um, they they need to put they need to put wins up up there and 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 climb the standings, or else then it's going to be not successful. But for this year, they can still they they can get a little bit of a pass in the win loss record for me at least. Well, you you mentioned the young arms because I can look at this starting lineup and say, okay, what's not to like here, right? There's some young guys that yeah maybe you need to take that next step, but in large part, you see a lot of proven commodities offensively. Yeah. But the pitching staff is where it's sort of up in the air. Uh, what do you think the ceiling is for, I, I know it's going to be year two for a couple of these guys, young arms that 
didn't exactly show out in spring training. So what is the ceiling versus maybe realistic expectations for 2021, specifically for that starting rotation? Well, for the rotation, I mean, you've got Keller, who I think that you I, – I don't, I don't know that 2020 was – I don't know that he can repeat that. I mean, that was, that was a really, really good season. And, and it, maybe I'm wrong, um, but the stuff – the peripherals just aren't quite there to be a two-and-a-half ERA guy. But he, he's a guy who can eat innings. You've got Duffy in there who – he's fine. Mike Miner, he's fine. Brady Singer, that, that's the, the ceiling there. I mean, who knows? Who knows what the ceiling is? He's probably, this is a weird thing to say, in my opinion, he has the lowest ceiling of all the young pitchers, but he's the guy who is there and could put up the best season. I don't, it's, it's hard to explain that, but um, his ceiling is, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about competing for a Cy Young, but all-star level. Um, and then you've got Lynch and Coar and all these guys. Lacey, you've got potential aces in this system, up and down. We don't even talk. I haven't mentioned Alec Marsh, who's a guy who they drafted him throwing 92 to 94. Now he's up in the mid to upper 90s. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches, honestly, with, with this pitching in the organization. And, and I think that I don't know that there is a ceiling, honestly. I mean, if, if they can get three or four of these guys to the top of their games, I mean, they, they could be the best pitching staff in the American League, not necessarily this season, um, potentially. I mean, they have guys who could potentially crack that upper echelon this season, I suppose. Um, but, you know, with the rotation, it's really going to be all about managing the innings and getting – helping the bullpen. So not having, to, not having to have the bullpen throw 600 innings this year, although they probably will. Um, but really just getting games to the middle innings, to the late innings, stuff like that. It's really next year that we're going to see the rotation, I think, take a step forward when you can add in those young arms. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it's crazy for me to be this excited about a team that I don't think is going to be that good, but I don't, I don't know that there's a ceiling. I, I feel like if, if things go perfectly, they could be one of the best pitching staffs in the American league. I, I don't, I'm not going to say I predict that necessarily, but they absolutely could because they've got that kind of talent. David Lesky with us for a few more minutes here on rock Chuck sports talk. Something that kind of, Caught me by surprise was the Salvador Perez extension, $82 million in money. And you look at those values, you know, three, four years down the line when you're making $20, $22 million a year. Seems like a lot of money for a guy who has been injury plagued. I know what he means to this organization, but uh, would you be willing to defend the contract extension for Perez? And if so, how would you do it? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit too much for me. It's it probably a year too much and about two to three million per year too much. So ultimately, not that huge of a deal. But still, I mean, I, I would not have given him the amount, the amount or the length they gave him. Um, I, I think if you look at it as the Royals making good, I think that's how you defend it. It's saying, look, we are, we're going to give you a lot of money if you do well. And so I think that's a maybe almost a selling point for future potential free agents for uh, you know the next the next Latin American guy who comes up and um, or even Bobby Witt Jr. Look, we're gonna we're gonna take care of you. Don't worry. Um, we may even overpay to take care of you. So I think that's the reasoning behind it. Um, I mean, his first contract was 
what, five years and $7 million with three option years that I think he had to pay the Royals. I'm, not, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he had to write them a check to pay those three years. So um, it's, they, he gave them a, a deal, and I, and I think now they're kind of giving him a deal, which is a little bit concerning because you don't want that to be a reason they can't do something in 2024 when they need an extra piece. But you, know, you hope that that's not the case because they have a new TV deal that's paying them more than double what they were getting before. The national TV deal kind of crescendos as far as what every team gets. Um, I've mentioned this a couple of times. They're going to expand. <laughs> There's going to be two new teams at some point, and that's the expansion fees are huge to each team. And so I don't think it'll cause that problem in the future, but that, that's a worry. That's definitely a worry. Um, like I said, I would have gone like three years and $54 million. They ended up a year and, and what, twenty. 26 million more, but um, I don't know. It, it's not the worst deal in the world. It's just, it, it's more than I would have given. Um, I don't think he should be paid like the second best catcher in baseball, but it, if it helps sign guys in the future, if it helps attract free agents in the future, this is an organization that, that continues to just do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, they kept on scouts. They paid their minor leaguers. They're paying Salvador Perez, they paid Hunter Dozier. I think they're going to pay Alberto Mondesi here in the next few days, potentially. So, they, they just keep they just keep doing it and uh, I think the hope is that by doing it they they can they can do better in the future and we'll see I, I it's one of those things we don't know if it's gonna work but um, I, I at least understand the thought process behind it he is David Lesky inside the crown subscribe to his new substack if you're a Royals fan and you just want the best Royals information in a very uh, easily digestible format. I would highly suggest checking it out, insidethecrown.substack.com. Always a pleasure, my friend. David, it's good to catch up with you, and uh, looking forward to continuing these conversations throughout the year, man. I cannot wait. Thanks, Nick. So we came into the NCAA tournament with the idea that there were sort of four elite teams and then everybody else, and I think those four elite teams were the 4-1 seeds, Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, and Illinois. Obviously a shocker to see Illinois go down in the second round, given what we sort of believe about Loyola, even though they lost this weekend. Uh, still, I guess it's a little bit more understanding than it would have been had any of the other one seeds lost in the second round. Yet here we are in the Elite Eight now. Three of those one seeds, Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan, still alive and sort of reaffirming what I think we believed about them coming into the tournament. Save what sort of skepticisms you may have had about Baylor because of the COVID pause and how they looked after that. Those were the three teams we felt like had separated themselves from the pack. And through three rounds, they seem like the three teams who have sort of separated themselves. Maybe you would argue that based off the way that, for, say, for instance, USC's looked, that, hey, they look like they are every bit of a, of a national championship contender. That's fine. I'm taking the regular season sample size, the beliefs that we held about those teams, and now coupling it with what they've shown you in the NCAA tournament kind of exactly what we expected to happen, which is those three teams looking very dominant through three rounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of would throw USC up there. You could probably argue UCLA, honestly, too. I mean, given that they're an 11 seed, yeah. and, I mean, BYU was a top 25 Ken Palm team, and you rolled through them. Um, you had to come back against Michigan State. I know Abilene Christian, that's not that impressive of a victory, but, hey, you beat who was in front of you, and then they looked really good against Alabama. I, I thought last night, like, Going into that game, that was the game I was almost most confident in, quote-unquote, that the higher seed was going to win with Alabama, and they just didn't. 
I mean, part of it is just because they blew it at the free throw line, but I've just been really impressed with, I, I mean, if you like look at Ken Palm, I don't know how often this happens. Five of the top six teams in Ken Palm are in the Elite Eight. I mean, you've you've kind of avoided chaos there. Seven of the was eight that teams the, are top eighteen. Were those? Are you talking about? No, currently. But even then, even then, like currently, I I mean, how often does that happen? Usually, well, before the tournament started, though, like USC wasn't sixth, obviously. I know, but Gonzaga, Baylor, Houston, Michigan were all top six. Mm-hmm. No, but what I'm saying is, even if you like go to certain years, like I, I don't know, maybe 2019 was a little bit of the same because there was a lot of chalk in 2019. But if you go years before, I feel like that wouldn't be the case. And like if you looked at the seeds of these teams, you might say, oh, well, USC's a six seed. That's kind of weird there in the Elite Eight, but it's not. They're ranked sixth on Ken Palm. So you actually have, because I saw this, I saw this a lot on Saturday. That first game started with Loyola Chicago playing Oregon State, and it was an ugly first half. And there were a lot of people, you know, mouthing off about, oh, this is why you don't want upsets. Everybody roots for upsets early, and this is what happens as a result of that. <laughs> and it's so stupid to me because, first of all, that is the ultimate hindsight take. Like, nobody in their right mind when it's a 5-12 game the first day of the tournament is like, you know what, it'd be cool for the 12 to win, but I'm all about the 5 seed because I want a better Sweet 16 game. Everybody roots for the 12 seed, so shut up. Yeah, I hate the idea of let's look at the long-term implications, guys. Yeah. Let's think about this before we start rooting for upsets. But anyway, the point is that we actually did get some really, really good matchups for the Elite Eight out of this. I mean, you don't always get this. Like I said, like it's the, the case. worst teams produce the best matchups in the in the Sweet 16. Yeah. Like Oral Roberts as a 15 seed, that was one of the best games of the weekend. UCLA is an 11 seed last night, one of the best games of the weekend. Oregon State... While it was sort of never in doubt down the stretch, I mean, you got Oregon State, the one team that even if you didn't, like, if we're ranking the teams beforehand, that was like the one team entering the tournament where like, uh, 12 seeds always be fives, but not this 12 seed, right? Mm -hmm. And that seems like that's what we have to start doing every year as well, is circling the team that nobody has good vibes about. Oregon (laughs) State was that team. Like, there was nobody saying, watch out for the Beavers. Nobody. And now here they are with the chance to go to the Final Four. And so, by the way, I just looked at 2018. Only two of the final Ken Palm Top 8 made the Elite Eight. So, like, this this is kind of rare. Not totally rare, but six of eight, like, and maybe that just makes it crazier what Oregon State has done. I mean, it, it's not just that, like, Oregon State was the recipient of, like, the easiest bracket in the world. It's not like they had to play, like, a 16 seed in the second round or something. Like They did get to play an 8 seed in the Sweet 16. Sure, but a, uh, an eight seed who was top ten in Ken Palm, you know, like if still you, not Illinois. No, I get you it. You know what I mean? I, like, no, it is. I mean, that is fortunate in that standpoint. But the reason I say this is because, like, if you go back, because they had to win every game from the Pac-12 tournament on just to get to this point. They lose any game in the Pac-12. They lose any game in the NCAA tournament. Their season's obviously over. They were, I mean, a missed UCLA free throw away from UCLA beating them. Instead, they come back to win in overtime, so they've won six straight games. These are the Ken Palm ranks of the six teams they've beaten. 16th, 15th, 9th, 27th, 34th, and 10th. I mean, that's like, if you gave that six-game stretch to anybody, you'd be like, holy cow, this is the hottest team in the country. Their defense has been pretty incredible. Like, the numbers that, now, some of it's probably luck. Um, Teams are shooting 23% from three-point range against them. I want to get into this, though, because everybody's talking about the three-point percentage luck. Yeah, it matters. But... 
but okay, look at three of the teams who had these, I guess, underdog runs to the wherever they were, Syracuse, Sweet 16, Oregon State Elite Eight, USC Elite Eight. You know what all three of those teams did? They've been playing zone. Like, at what point do we start to correlate playing zone with length to being able to slowing down three-point shooting? I think we've already, we were, we've passed that point years ago. There's a reason why Jim Bay has been doing it. I want to re up the conversation. You, this is like, you, you can't sit here. This is like Clay Travis last year. <laughs> he said, you know what golf should do? They should come up with a head-to-head tournament format. I'm like, wow, Clay Travis just invented match play. They've been doing it for decades. Nobody's been saying that the Chiefs can win the Super Bowl. <laughs> like Jim Beheim's been yeah. running this defense for four decades, and you're sitting here saying, when are we going to start talking about zone defense's impact on teams' ability to shoot? We have been. Um, I get your point. I want Kansas to play zone is the aftermath. I mean, there's a reason why Syracuse has had success in the tournament. It's because that's a tough defensive scheme to game plan for, especially on a quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. And everybody, and there's a reason why it doesn't necessarily result in great regular season success because those coaches and teams prepare for it. They go at, up against it year after year after year. So No, I think that if I was a college coach, I would never play zone, and then the week before the NCAA tournament, that's all I would work on for a week. And then we'd play zone the entire NCAA tournament. But what if you don't? Oh, you're talking about employing it defensively, not yes. going up against it. Correct. I don't think you're going to get the desired results. You can't prove me wrong. No, but I just I would I would probably take the the mountains of data that would suggest changing your defensive identity one week before the the, the postseason begins probably isn't a winning strategy. You know, USC is an interesting one because you brought them up when I mentioned you know Gonzaga, Michigan. And uh, Baylor as being the sort of dominant teams that we thought they were going to be. And we didn't think that USC was going to be this. But if you just want to base it off of how you've looked through three rounds, I think it'd be tough to make an argument against USC. Because they're doing it on both ends of the court. This isn't a team that's winning because they're locking in defensively and they're playing grind out games. This isn't a team that's just winning because they're knocking down threes. They're doing it on both ends. We already knew that USC was one of the elite interior defenses. And what has Bill Self said for years? Like, that is the best thing that you can do defensively is take away easy shots. Well, nobody does it better than USC. So the fact that it's working in the tournament shouldn't come as a huge surprise to us. Now, they are knocking down 51% of their threes, and there's part of me that looks at that and says... Yeah, okay, that's not going to continue. And when it doesn't, that's when you lose, and it could happen tomorrow night against Gonzaga, who has done nothing for six months to dissuade us from the idea that they're the best team in college basketball. But up until this point, if we're just basing it off of what we've seen, USC has been as impressive as anybody that we've seen. And I I know we're going to get into this here uh, later on in the segment or later on in the hour, but... While there's part of me that wonders if USC's luck, quote-unquote, is going to run out, there's also part of me that wonders if Gonzaga has seen anything like those Mobley brothers in yeah. the front court. And they haven't. The answer is they haven't because nobody else has anything like that. Nobody else has the number two overall pick on their team who's a seven-foot big man who can do a little bit of everything. So that'll be interesting. Um, I would think that USC will have more questions than Gonzaga, but you're right, man. Like Oregon State is right there, too. As bad as we thought Oregon State was coming into the tournament, if you just want to base it off of what we've seen so far, you could argue they have been one of the most impressive teams through the first three rounds. Yeah, I mean, they're like, 
it was easy to look at their first round game against Tennessee and say, oh, they blew them out. Like Tennessee's been inconsistent this year, and they have. But that's still a really talented Tennessee team. And now that we look back on it, you know, it's it's easy the same way we look back on USC Kansas. At first it was like, oh, what's wrong with Kansas? But now it's just like, oh, maybe they're they're that good. I I don't like the Oregon State one though doesn't make sense to me. Like I get USC because you do have all that length, you do have all that talent, you do have a lot of like experience. There's a lot of grad transfers on that team. Oregon State, like, how do you go from being a team who loses twelve games in the Pac twelve to now looking like like this has been a legit run. It's not It's not shaky. It's not like they're hitting all these game-winning shots. I, I just don't get it. I, I don't get basketball. I, I mean, even USC. Like, how has USC lost well, seven let's games? Look at this. Let's how look have th- they lost seven games? How do they lose three times to Colorado? So this is what's crazy to me about Oregon State. So they didn't have much of an identity entering the tournament. Like, we always look for, like, Oral Roberts, Liberty. Those are teams that you can sort of understand why it clicks this time of year because you have a niche. You are elite at one thing. You may not be well-rounded, but you do one thing really well. What did Oral Roberts do really well? They shot threes, man. They shoot a lot of them, and they hit a lot of them. That's a niche. So you can understand if you just get hot at the right time, yeah, you can beat anybody. Oregon State was not that team. Oregon State came in as an above-average offense and an average defense. But specifically, Oregon State was pretty bad at interior defense. On the season, they ranked 225th out of what, 357, 353? They were 11th in the Pac-12. Team shot 53% inside against Oregon State. That was 11th in interior defense. So far, three games, teams are shooting 37% inside. That is fifth amongst all tournament teams. So it's not just that teams can't hit a shot from outside against them. Teams can't score inside against them either. How do you go from being a weak interior defense to an elite one? Z-O-N-E. But that answers your question. (laughs) Like, how does this team that went what? 14 and 12 in the race that went 10 and 10. 10 and 10 in conference play. Which, looking back, actually, really impressive to win 10 games in the Pac 12. Yeah, they didn't have to play a one seed, but also <laughs> they played an underseeded Oklahoma State team in the second round. Like, that matters too. So, I don't know, man. Maybe this is just reaffirming what we knew, which is that it's all random and there's no need to sit here and break stuff down and try and get to the bottom of it because you're not going to find some secret formula hidden in here. You're not going to sift through the rubble and say, wow, I found it. This is the formula for going on a deep run as a 12 seed. But we did do our uh, narrowing down for who can win the national championship. Both teams still live, so that's good. Houston and Gonzaga. What about our draft? We're going to do that later in the week, I'm sure. I still have Baylor alive. Did I take Oregon? I did take Oregon State. Oh, I hate that. Makes me feel good. I have Oregon State or Houston, so I have a guaranteed Final Four team. Right. It is a shame that nobody has USC. Because, like... We had opportunities. I know. But they could legitimately win the national title. I don't think it's that crazy. I mean, they got a pretty tough test tomorrow. So let's get through. Everybody does. It's the Elite Eight. Uh, Gonzaga's better than everybody else, though. So... Um, I'm not looking good. I got Baylor a bust. <laughs> I got Baylor a bust. That's not the worst thing in the world, though. You've got four teams. I've got one. Yeah, that's not great for you. I may lobby to get an extra team 
later on in the week. Maybe I'll give you UCLA. All right, let's get into some of these Elite Eight matchups. we got two coming up tonight. We'll do that next. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. What time does coverage start? Six o'clock. Okay. Six o'clock. We've got your Elite Eight coverage via Westwood One. Oregon State, Houston, the first game of the night. Houston is eight-point favorites as the two-seed. Oregon State as the 12-seed. This is an unlikely Elite Eight matchup. I don't know how many people's brackets had this, but Houston, if they win this game and go to the Final Four, like if I just told you, hey, Houston's going to emerge from this bracket. If I would have told you that two weeks ago, you would have said, I could see it, right? That'd be a great game to see Illinois and Houston in the Elite Eight. Well, we got an orange team versus a red team, but it's not the orange team you were thinking of. It is Oregon State. And if Houston gets to the Final Four, they will have done so, beating Cleveland State, Rutgers, Syracuse, and Oregon State, which isn't necessarily going to inspire a ton of confidence. But you know what? It's not their job. Mm -hmm. It's not their job to inspire confidence. They don't control who they play. The bracket fell very favorably for them. And at this point, I have every expectation that Houston's going to the Final Four with Kelvin Sampson. Yeah, I I do too. And I mean... You know, there will be a lot of people saying this, and gosh, they've got to be the first team and maybe ever, this is just me spitballing, who has played a progressively worse seed as they've gone on the tournament. They went 10-11, now 12. 15-10-11-12. Yeah, just from the second round on. That's that's pretty incredible. But yeah, I mean, any school would take it, and you have to still take advantage of the opportunity. Like, Kansas in 2011, you know, you got the opportunity Houston's having right now. You didn't take advantage of it. You went... 16, 8, 12, 11, and you couldn't beat the 11. So, you know, people will complain about it, but hey, more power to you. But I do think it's funny that, like, Houston could be a Final Four team and, like, they could, I don't know, get blown out by Baylor or Arkansas in the Final Four, and we'll have no idea, like, how good Houston is, even if they make the Final Four. Like, if, if we were doing Are They Good with Houston, I would have nowhere, no idea where to go. All they could do tonight is prove to us that they're bad. Correct. <laughs> yeah. By losing. Yeah. They lose the game, and we'll say, oh, turns out, I don't think Houston was very good, man. They win the game, we'll say, oh, congrats, you beat Oregon State. 12 seed, they're like one of the last teams in. So, I don't know, man. I'm excited to see Quentin Grimes in the Final Four. Wow, what a career arc. Against a Big 12 team, possibly, in Baylor. His career arc is objectively more interesting to us than it is for probably most college basketball fans who would look at it and say, former McDonald's All-American? Yeah. Guess it makes sense that he's the best player on a really good team. Yes and no, right? We didn't see this coming. It's sort of funny. I was talking to somebody about this on Saturday when they were playing. You know, looking back on his departure and why he ended up leaving, it essentially came down to the fact that his freshman year didn't go well, or as he would have expected it to. Devon Dotson was going to come back for his sophomore year. Quentin Grimes looked at that and said, another year where I don't really get to run the point or I'm not a featured ball handler. It was as simple as that. Like, we can, you can make it about whatever you want, about he wasn't happy here, he didn't like Bill Self. It wasn't a good fit. He was not a fit next to Dotson, and he made a great choice for himself to go to this team where it's sort of everybody just get in where you fit in. The best players are going to get action, but we're going to have a lot of guards, a lot of ball handlers, a lot of spacing. We're going to get out and run. It's fun to watch. Like Houston's a fun, objectively fun basketball team to watch, and Quentin Grimes is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. That Dejon Giroux kid is is really fun. I, I I think this is one of those cases where everything worked out for both parties. Um, 
and obviously it's it's hard to say that now when you see Kansas knocked out in the second round and Quentin Grimes is thriving, hitting whatever four or five threes against Syracuse and having a big game to propel him to the Elite Eight and, you know, being all conference and all American type of things. But like, okay, you have to admit that last year, because Quentin Grimes still struggled a bit last year as a sophomore before he had his breakout this year. I think if Quentin Grimes is on that roster last year, like is KU a better, worse, or the same, you know? He's playing over Isaiah, Isaiah Moss. Moss, which yes, Quentin Grimes is one hundred percent a better player than Isaiah Moss, but given what that team needed last year, is he a better fit than Isaiah Moss? I don't know. Well, but specifically Grimes has gotten better across the board, but he's improved his shot a lot. Right. He went from he shot thirty four percent as a freshman. 32% or 33% as a sophomore to 41% this year. That is a massive mm-hmm. jump. Yeah. That's go- that's that's the difference between being a slightly below average shooter to a well above average shooter. That's a huge jump from one year to the next. And that's why it's worked out for both sides. Um, because, you know, maybe this year, if he would have stuck around with Kansas, he is the guy. And maybe that was the type of guy that they're missing. But even then, like, if Quentin Grimes is on this Kansas team, are they are they beating USC? Instead of losing by 30? I don't know. Probably not. So I think it worked out for both parties. It's more interesting to think about this year than last year. Last year, you were good no matter what, whatever. This year, what does you need? Ball handlers, playmakers, shot creators. It's kind of what he does. I think this team would have been objectively. I keep saying that's the third time I've said objectively. And none of it's objective. Like all of it's open to interpretation. But that's how you hammer a point home. A little, little industry inside info there. Uh, I think this team would be a lot better with Quentin Grimes. A lot better. Are they beating USC? Because they lost by 30. Are they beating the USC that goes 11 of 18 from three? No. Who is? Like, what's the winning percentage for a team that shoots 11 for 18 from three this year? Probably pretty high. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Like, who? Tell me how many players. Like, stop me. I'll just start adding NBA All-Stars. LeBron James. Blake. Uh, Just stop me when KU finally has the firepower to beat. LeBron James would probably be enough. Yes. Because it's crazy. LeBron like, James would probably find yeah, a way around. Evan Mobley's this I, like matchup nightmare for everybody. Well, if you think that's a matchup <laughs> nightmare, welcome. <laughs> wait till I, wait till you see the new kid. Right. All right. Arkansas Baylor is the other one. And this is a much better game, I would say. Even though this Baylor looks pretty unbeatable and Arkansas had some troubles against uh, Oral Roberts. it's st- I'm, I'm still just going to be interested to see because it is, an, un- once again, I think it's a a pretty significant step up. You could split hairs between Villanova and and uh, Arkansas, who's better there. I know, like, historically, we would probably lean towards Villanova, but without Colin Gillespie, they sort of got exposed in the second half when Baylor really started to lock in defensively. So I, I don't really know where you fall on that. What is perhaps most intriguing about what we've seen from Baylor is they have looked so good, so good, yet they haven't been hitting shots. Like, that's the reason they were down in the first half against Nova was because they couldn't knock down anything from the outside. And I don't know who it was uh, on the halftime show for CBS or whatever channel that game was on who just sort of said, Baylor's used to knocking down shots. They don't have an inside presence, so if they don't knock down shots, they're not going to win. And they proceeded to not knock down shots in the second half and run away with the game. Because you know what guards can do? They can also drive. 
<laughs> Baylor is shooting 32% from three among tournament teams, Derek. That ranks 49th. So it's not just that they're not hitting shots. Like, they're one of the worst shooting teams right now. I got to imagine that's not going to last. Like, they're going to start hitting shots, and when they do, uh-oh. Because the defense looks elite. The defense looks like the Baylor defense we saw the first couple months of the season. The offense still hasn't caught up. And if we're just talking about shooting, that's going to come around eventually, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I don't know if this is the game that it happens. Because Arkansas has length, they have depth, they have athleticism, and they're a top 10 defense in the country. So I, I don't know if you'd circle this game, but certainly you'd think it, it happens at some point. So maybe it is this game, because we know that, you know, you could be the best defense in the world, but you could still get villanova I guess, on any, any single night. I think Arkansas, like if I'm re-ranking these Elite Eight teams, Arkansas is eighth. Really? They've, what have they done that there's looked a, impressive? I know, but there's an 11 and a 12 seed in. I'm basing it purely off of what we've seen in the tournament. Like, what has Arkansas done that that makes you think that this is a team that's playing good basketball? Like, I think in terms of paths, like that you sneak past a, a, a floundering Texas Tech team by two. You beat a 15 seed by two in the last round. Uh, I'm sorry, Colgate was top 10 in the net. At no point has Arkansas looked like they are a legitimate Final Four caliber team. Like, this is a game I'm interested to see how it goes just because there's still a part of me that wonders about Baylor. But I kind of expect them to undress the Razorbacks tonight. Mm. See, the only thing that gives me worries, like I said, it's that length and athleticism. Like, I mean, Baylor's guards, as good as they are, and they're athletic too, they don't have a ton of length. And so I wonder how, and this isn't me saying that they're going to struggle, but I just don't know the answer to it. How are you going to go against, you know, for like Davion Mitchell, for instance, when you're on offense, I know Davion Mitchell will be shut down on defense. When you're on offense, you're six foot three. You're going to be guarded by a six foot six Moses Moody who's going to be a lottery pick, you know? Like, is, is that going to be tough for you to get off shots? Jared Butler has really struggled, um, probably going back to like the Kansas game at the end of the regular season. So I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of interested by Arkansas. It almost feels like this is the. The status quo for Eric Musselman. I get it. They've been close games against teams that you don't want them to play close games against. But, like, go back to the Nevada days with Eric Musselman. This was the this was the recipe for success. They would get down 20 at halftime. They'd come back and they'd win a close game. Like, that's just how it works. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's not sustainable, but it seems to be for him because he keeps going deep in tournaments. I get it. And you're right. Um, you know, those Nevada teams, one of those Nevada teams had the, who were the Twins? Martin twins? Yeah, I mean those are, are twins MB or just brothers. Well, they look a lot alike. Okay, I'm gonna go with twins. So prove me wrong. If your brothers, your twins. Mm -hmm. That's just how I feel. <laughs> okay. Which, by the way, the Mobley brothers look nothing alike. Nothing alike. <laughs> you, I would be shocked if you would have told me if you would have if they had different last names. I would have just assumed like you would never think, oh, those guys related. Never. Even if they had a more, if they had a more common name, if they're the Smith, I would just assume, ah. Oh, you know, it's a common name. They probably just have the same last name, not related at all yet. And they don't play the same at all either. Uh, Baylor's too deep, man. I don't care about the amount of NBA talent on the other team because Baylor is too freaking deep. They go to their sixth, their seventh, or eighth man. Like, the best player on the floor against Nova was Flagler, right? Who is maybe their sixth man, depending on how you feel about Flagler versus Mayer. Like, they're that good. 
I just, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm back. I'm back on Baylor. I'm back to thinking this is one of the top two teams in the country. Top three. I mean, Michigan deserves to be in that conversation, too. They've, we kind of got stuck on the Gonzaga-Baylor thing, but for three months now, Michigan's been one of the elite teams in the country. They deserve to be yeah. mentioned. Uh, so, I mean, if, if Baylor does shoot well tonight, then yes, I would gladly think that they'll win by double digits. Okay, okay. this is not just a good shooting team. This was the best right. three-point shooting team in the country. That's going to come back. They've, they had their lull, right? They had three games where they didn't knock down shots. What do you want to bet on? Do you want to bet on they're going to have a fourth one? Or do you want to bet on the large sample size from this season that suggested there's nobody better at shooting threes than this team? Well, I, I don't know. It doesn't help they're playing in Lucas Oil, which it's not the basketball arena thing. I I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sold that this is going to be something that automatically just turns around. Like, it might. I just think that they're on a trend where I don't want to bet against the trend more so than the overwhelming thing that's happening because that's what this March Madness has shown me. Sometimes it's more about the trend, you know? There's no reason Oregon State should be in the Elite Eight, but that's where they're trending right now. So I, I don't think it would be that crazy if Baylor lost this game. Wait a minute. You think Baylor's going to lose this game? I don't think they're going to lose, but like... No. I'm taking Say Arkansas something with the spread. With conviction. I'm taking Arkansas with the spread. Okay, but if what about money line? Taking Baylor money line? Yeah. Arkansas is easily the eighth best team remaining. Easily. Take them over Oregon State. UCLA would be very interesting. But all of those teams, Oregon State and UCLA, they've played better. They have played better basketball in the tournament. So then why why is it with Baylor it's like, oh, well, they could surely shoot better, but with Arkansas it's not, oh, well, they could surely play better. Because Baylor has already established themselves as one of the elite teams in the country. Arkansas, all year, was a fringe top 15, top 20 team in the country. Yeah, three seed. Congrats. All year, that's who they were. And they've done nothing to change that opinion. Like, at no point have they said, well, maybe they're a little bit better than we thought. They've not looked like that at all. So if you are suggesting that they're going to do that against the best team they've played all season... That's perfectly fine. That's quite the limb to go out on. I'm not going to do it. And I've never been wrong about any of my predictions. Go check my bracket. It's nearly perfect through three rounds. Um, So, I'm taking favorites, and I'm taking spreads. I'm taking Houston minus eight. I'm taking Baylor minus eight. Parlay them. I'm going to Kokomo. And with my offseason, once RCST trivia is done in like May, I'm going to Kokomo with my winnings that I'm going to win tonight. Um, Bermuda, Bahamas area, Key Largo, Montego, nah, okay. somewhere around you have there. No idea where it is. Uh, they say it in the song. No, they just list tropical places. No, if we if we can, do you know all the words to Kokomo? Off no, the Florida. Oh yeah, that's the, the first words. line. It's the first line. He goes off the Florida Keys. There's a place called Kokomo. Okay. That's where you want to go to get away from it all. Bodies in the sand. Okay. Can we get sued here? For re- for reciting the lyrics to a Beach Boys song from know. copyright rules 30 years ago? I don't think so. All right, let's get into tomorrow night's games. Coming up next, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. 
there's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man. Where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane, unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them, unlimited guest service, and most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and body wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. Is it possible that an undefeated team, a team that has been the number one team in college basketball all season long that has thoroughly dominated everybody they faced so far through three rounds is somehow flying under the radar? Because if so, it feels like Gonzaga is flying under the radar a little bit. Yeah, I kind of think so. I mean, the fact that USC has just turned into this, like, titan of a basketball team, both, I guess, literally with all the size they have and figuratively – it kind of feels that way. Like, I I think a lot of people are getting to the point where they're like, USC could win this game. And it's kind of making me think that Gonzaga could go out there and just be like, oh, you think so? And they're going to win by 20. Gonzaga is going to win by 20. Because so? that's all Gonzaga does. Like, okay, Norfolk State, Oklahoma, fine. Creighton's a good basketball team. And you dispatched them yeah. with ease. Like, okay. they toy with teams at times. Here's they a little uh, RCST early trivia, even though it's not, like, KU-related at all. Do you know the only team to play Gonzaga within single digits this year? There's only been one of them. Was it in conference play? It was non-conference play. Um, Every other game has ended in double digits. Was it USC? No, they didn't I was about play. to say, I didn't think they'd played them. Um... Well, I know it wasn't Kansas. I know it wasn't Virginia. I know it wasn't Iowa. Those were all double digits, correct? Yes. I don't know. West Virginia. Come on down. Lost by five. But that was the game that Jalen Suggs got hurt and missed like 10 minutes. So so you got to take the point guard out of the game. Yeah. His ball handling skills are unbelievable. I don't, I get every time I watch them because one night it will be Timmy, the next night it will be Kispert, the next night it'll be Jalen Suggs. Every time I've watched them this year, I fall in love. I'm like, no, he's the best player. No, 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 but he's the one. And then like, so on, on Sunday against Creighton, I was watching that and it was like every other possession because at first I go, uh, it's, it's Timmy. Like Timmy is, that's the guy you want on your team. That guy is on your team. You're one of the best teams in the country. And then for, like, two possessions, it was Jalen Suggs who, like, ripped off a pass and then threw a perfect full-court pass to Timmy. It's, And then there's times when they'll be down. Like, I watched a game, I think they were playing Pacific earlier this year, and they were down. 
They were down by like five with 12 minutes to go. And then on three straight possessions, Corey Kispert just pulls up and <laughs> buries like three, 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 boom, they're up and they end up winning the game by like 15 or 20. So I don't know. And then you've got like Joel Ayayi, who is sort of their slasher. He can get in those. I, you know how many times he scores off just like a baseline cut and they're accounting for everybody else? And Did you ever open? see his uh, stat sheet in the game against Iowa? No. Like, I, this was not even talked about because, like, to your point, they have just all these games where it's just like, ah, you know, it's this guy's the best player, this guy's the best player, this guy's the best player. Against Iowa, he had maybe the greatest game that any of those individual players have had this season. Okay, I'm waiting. And I can't find it. I've got it for you. You got it? 11 points, 18 rebounds, 6 assists. 18 rebounds. He's 6'5". Against Portland, he had 12 re- twelve points, 13 rebounds, and 14 assists. He's not even a point guard. <laughs> He's like their two slash three. They don't really have positions outside no. of Drew Timmy's the big guy and Jalen Suggs like, is the point guard. basically a shooting guard, but he's like playing the playing four. Playing the four. Yeah. He plays the four for them. But I love, but that's the thing is, I give people a pass for saying that USC has a chance against them. And here's why. Because it's not fun to do, to say the same thing over and over again for five months. It's not. There's nothing interesting about it. There's nothing fun. You don't feel like you're really even engaging in anything if you just say, nope, nope, nobody can beat them. Nobody can beat them. They're too good. They're too good. Watch them play yeah. and tell me who can beat them. Tell me what it would take to beat them. Because here's, I'll, I'll tell you what it will take. The performance that USC gave against Oregon last night was great. It wouldn't beat Gonzaga. Because to, in order to beat Gonzaga, you have to keep shooting lights out from three and Evan Mobley has to be the best player on the court, which is a tough task. Because Gonzaga may have three players better right now than Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley's going to get drafted ahead of all of them. But right now, Evan Mobley might be the fourth best player on the court. Even if he is the best, then what? Gonzaga has two through five? Yeah. You know, so does it matter? Um, You're basically splitting hairs. And I get it. I've seen the one comment out there that, you know, what's Gonzaga going to look like when they're dealing with this length? I mean, I mentioned the West Virginia game. That was when West Virginia was playing Culver and Shibway down low. They seem to deal with that just fine. They seem to deal with Luca Garza just fine. They won that game by 11. They seem to deal with Kansas's length just fine. And, and by the way, I've said that too as like a throwaway line. What are they going to do against USC's length? Probably shoot over the top of it. Right. And they're playing zone. So, like, do you not think Corey Kispert and Joel Iyai and Jalen Suggs aren't going to hit open threes? Because I do. Like, put Joel Iyai in the middle of that zone. You can put him at the high post and let him just sort of distribute. Put any of those guys at the high post. Right, Drew Timmy. Yeah, exactly. The only question I have is, you know, what is that going to do on the interior? Um, Because I'll say that, like, Drew Timmy is phenomenal. They don't have a lot of big depth. And mostly it doesn't matter. Because if Drew Timmy gets in foul trouble, oh, we're up 15 anyway. Or it's just like even our backup center is better than the center for Santa Clara or Portland or whatever. If they get in a game against USC where Drew Timmy gets in foul trouble, that might be a little problematic because I don't know how they would stop USC at the other end as much inside. And also you lose that interior threat to where maybe they can clamp more on the outside because I'll say this, USC at least they do the one thing well that you need to do well as a defense against Gonzaga. Gonzaga is the number one offense in the country at shooting two-point shots. USC is the number one defense in the country. Actually, let's two. um, let's we need to adjust that what you said because it's okay. not inaccurate, but it's not fully accurate. 
yes, Gonzaga is the best offense in the country from two-point range. The best two-point percentage in the country. It's also the best two-point percentage ever. Okay. Ever. They're the greatest interior scoring basketball team ever. So, just want to add that in there because yeah, okay, I feel no. like it's a significant to piece show, of information. To show that number, they're shooting 64% on twos. Last year, Kansas featured Devon Dotson, who is elite at getting to the rim, and Yudoka Azubuki, who is the most efficient at shooting two-point shots in the history of the NCAA. KU shot almost 10% worse from twos than Gonzaga shooting right now. It's pretty incredible. You know why? Because every sing- it's not just one guy or two guys. Everybody. Everybody on their team. I think it's a spacing thing, too. It's the most beautiful brand of college basketball I have ever watched. Ever. And I wasn't around for 1976 Indiana, but it's better than 2015 Kentucky. It may not be a more talented team than Kentucky, but it's a better brand of basketball. It's more enjoyable. Like, think about it. So fun to watch. The Villanova team that was an offensive juggernaut, they shot 59% on twos. That's 5% worse. Significant. Yeah. So there is there's the uh, there's the Gonzaga getting their dues because I don't think USC is going to hang around. Gonzaga is a nine point favorite. So think about that too. Is that you just said yeah. only one team all year? West Virginia back in what December mm-hmm. kept it within single digits against and Gonzaga. Again, Suggs was injured, and Vegas is saying USC will do it. Okay, barely. Okay, because I'll tell you this right now. USC is an average three-point shooting team who has been shooting out of their minds in the NCAA tournament. If they don't continue to do that, they're going to lose by 20. Yes. If they don't continue to shoot 40% or above, they're shooting 51% in the tournament. If they don't continue shooting 40% or above, they've got no chance. Like they, I think they need to hit 50% of their threes to beat Gonzaga. I agree, but you, you probably— have to play a perfect game. Yeah, I mean, and it can happen, like— if you were a Duke fan in 2018, you were probably saying the same thing about Kansas coming in with Malik Newman. It's like, oh, Malik Newman's shooting 60% from threes. That's not going to continue. He better do that if they want to beat us. And you know what he did? He shot even better than that. Right, so exactly. It's possible. But, yeah, to your point, that's what's crazy, though, about this Gonzaga team. Like, USC still could go 11 of 20 from three, and Gonzaga could still win by seven points. Because they can do so many other things. I mean, they give up 88 points to Iowa and still won by double digits. And they get up on you in a hurry, too. Like, they can be down, and within five minutes, all of a sudden, it's a tie ball game. They do it like an NBA team. You see that in the NBA all the time, where a team will be down in the third quarter, and you're like, this game's over. They're down by 15. You leave the room, you come back, and it's a two-point game. You don't see it as much in college basketball because the pace isn't like that, but when Gonzaga's rolling, that's what they look like. The UCLA-Michigan game tomorrow night, is actually the smallest Vegas line of these four remaining games. Just seven points. Michigan is favored by UCLA, which you look at the two seed lines. One's a one seed, has been one of the best teams all season long, and the other one is an 11 seed. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But UCLA, with the way that their offense has come alive, specifically, like, their success up until this point is... They're hitting threes and their opponents aren't. It's a really good formula for success. That's all that really stands out to me. Like last night, when Johnny Juzang went out with his fifth foul, I thought it was over. I thought there's no way that you're going to be able to beat this team, especially 
when they hit the three at the end of regulation to send it in overtime, you're thinking UCLA is not going to be able to win without their best player. That was the best stretch of basketball they played the whole night with a five minutes in overtime where they ran away from Alabama. This UCLA team is legit because that's really like going back to what's your niche, what's your identity. That's the closest that UCLA had to an identity coming into the tournament was that if I pointed to one thing, I'd say, well, they don't turn the ball over and they hit a lot of threes. Well, they've been limiting turnovers and knocking down threes, and their opponents haven't been. That's why they're here. And Michigan doesn't force turnovers. They're in the bottom, like, 40 of the country in terms of turnover rate defensively. But to that point, I was watching ESPN's, like, they have some sort of gambling show on like ESPN News or something. I don't even know who the guys are. Bless their hearts because they're doing... I'm sure they make a lot of money, so whatever. They can take this. Uh, one of the guys said that. One of the guys goes, what well, is your lock for this weekend? And he's like, oh, Florida State minus four and a half. I'm taking the money line. He goes, Florida State, they don't turn the ball over. Mich- or they turn the ball over. Michigan doesn't turn teams over defensively. You can't force them into what they do poorly. You're not going to win this game. Well, they didn't, and they still won the game. So uh, maybe it doesn't matter, but UCLA's a hot team right now, mm-hmm. and there's a difference between being hot and sort of finding your niche. They're hot. They play hard. They seem to have pretty good synergy offensively. Um, I don't know if they're good enough to beat Michigan, but this is the one game where I feel like most certain it's going to be relatively close. Yeah, I just I, I circle two kind of matchups in this game. The first is Hunter Dickinson against Cody Riley. Cody Riley was awesome in that Alabama game, getting putbacks, getting dunks on the inside. You're not going to have that same luxury. Um, Cody Riley is an athletic six foot nine, actually from Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, Hunter Dickinson is just a brick wall of a man. So that's going to be a little tougher there. You're not going to get that same production, I would guess, out of Riley. The other way, I, I don't know what Michigan's going to do about Jaime Hawkes. That dude has been just shooting flamethrowers out of his arms all tournament. He's like a stretch Dude, a couple four. of those he had last night were just like complete heat checks. Those are the ga- those are the shots where you're watching as a fan saying, you're doing too much. Okay, the first yeah. couple were good, but but he was hitting them. Once you make them, it's like, oh, they're going to win this game. Yeah. And see, that's, that's the perfect guy that if Michigan had Isaiah Livers, it sounds like he's going to be out for the tournament, he would be able to go one-on-one with him, and they actually would have kind of a similar game. Maybe put Franz Wagner on him. If that's what they do, I think that'd be brilliant because Franz Wagner is one of the best defenders in the country. He's going to be a lottery pick. Um, that might be the way that you can finally slow down this Hawkes guy, but otherwise he's just been a matchup nightmare for everybody. I, I just don't know at the end of the day how UCLA is going to stop Michigan. How are you going to stop Hunter Dickinson? Mm-hmm. Like Cody Riley, I feel like might get abused defensively. And Michigan, it's not, I mean, Hunter Dickinson's made a lot of guys look silly, but Michigan just knows what they do so well. And it's playing around Dickinson, and when the defense converges, they move the ball better than any team in the country. Maybe save Gonzaga. But, like, their ball movement, it's not predicated on one guy. Oh, they got one guy who you have to focus so much, he's going to beat you off the dribble and the defense converges. It's not like that. They play around their big guy, and when the defense sort of sucks in on Dickinson... They just move, and they find that open shot. And that's why, you know, the livers, I wondered about it too, but what's been clear during the NCAA tournament without him, it's a big miss, but it's not 
fundamentally changing how they have to play. No, which is last year it was the complete opposite. Like, he was the team. Mm -hmm. Then Dickinson changes that. Having a top five player in the country can sort of alter that a little bit. So, I ultimately, I think Michigan's going to win, but UCLA, unlike maybe Oregon State or even Arkansas to that matter, like, they're an underdog I look at this week and say, they have a formula to success, whereas those other teams, I just don't necessarily see it. So, um... I'm going all chalk. As as upset-laden as this tournament has been, I think it's going to give us a very chalky Final Four. I think we see three one-seeds and a two-seed. I'm going Gonzaga, Michigan, Baylor, Houston, which had you filled out your bracket that way, you would have felt like, oh, I need more upsets, right? It's not going to be that chalky. Well, it could be because I think that all of four of those teams are... I, I hate to say it because the Sweet 16 was kind of like this, not a ton of fun games. You got two good games. Arkansas Oral Roberts game was good. And then obviously UCLA Bama last night. I think we might see more stinkers, which is fine because if it gives us great final four matchups, who's going to complain about it in the end? All right. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. Two hours down, one to go. You're listening to Rock Chuck Sports Talk.